Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would be our teacher this evening, that you would use your Holy Bible to give us instruction, that it would be a light in a dark place, and that you would give us your Holy Spirit. I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. I want to tell you a story from our church plant. In the first year of our church plant, we did a lot of door-to-door work. We always do a lot of door-to-door work, but the first year especially because we had to meet people we didn't know. And one of the ladies that we gave a magazine to was named Ethel Bunn. Ethel was in her 90s and lived in an assisted living apartment complex. And she was a United Pentecostal member. Do you even have United Pentecostals in Idaho? That I, I had my doubts. Um, the United Pentecostal Church is very helpful to Adventists in terms of theology. Let me explain to you how you can use their existence to help teach people the truth. United Pentecostals believe that there's only one being in the Godhead, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are just one person, different manifestations of the same being. And when Jesus is praying, he's talking to himself. I'm trying to help you understand the the concept of United Pentecostals. What they have in common with other Pentecostals is that they speak in tongues and have healings and interpretations and rolling and laughing and whatever else. That's what they have in common, but where they differ, they differ strongly on this issue of the Godhead. And one of their key doctrines is about baptism. Because you know Matthew 28, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when you read the book of Acts, you never see that same phraseology again. In the book of Acts, it says they were baptized in the name of Jesus or baptized in the name of the Lord. Has anyone here ever observed that before in the book of Acts? So that, that's, that's the way it is all through the book of Acts. Their belief, this is like this, the foundation of their doctrine. That's not where it came from. It came from demons. But this is the, the way the demons explained it, is that the correct formula for baptism is to be baptized in the name of Jesus, which is the name of the Father Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to teach you how to be part of this group. That's not it. But just listen carefully. Then there's the normal brand of Pentecostals, which I'm sure you have in Idaho. And uh, they believe about the same thing about the Godhead probably that you do. I mean, fairly similar. Here's where it helps us. They both exist it proves, absolutely proves, that the fact that you speak in tongues and have healings and miracles can't be evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. Because these two spirits hate each other. In other words, they accuse each other of each being the false manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And I would just say, as Wycliffe said, or Huss, no, it was Wycliffe, then Huss, really, they both had the same experience. You know, in the time of Wycliffe, there were two popes? In the time of Huss, there were three. And uh, what Huss said is they're all right when they call each other the Antichrist. And it really was a great help 
to the, those who are teaching truth in the Middle Ages to have the popes fighting each other that way. It's a great help to you in winning your neighbors to know this little interesting fact about the Pentecostal movement and the split it had a few decades ago between these two alternating branches. Is there anyone here that can understand what I'm trying to say, how it could possibly help you? And for the rest of you, you can ask those who raise their hands because we're done with that. So Ethel Bunn uh, was a Bible-believing lady who lived a tortured life because her son had died without being baptized in the name, the proper type of baptism. And that's a salvational issue. So her son was lost, burning in hell, and he had died young and she was old, so he had been burning in hell already for decades, and she loved him and it made her life hard. Can you imagine being a mother like that? Just believing that it made her life difficult. But when she read the Bible, she read about the gift of tongues, and she knew what was going on in her church didn't quite match 1 Corinthians 14. You know, let everything be done decently and in order, and a few other things she noticed. When she got the magazine we gave her on the Sabbath, she read it through, and she believed it, and she was a Sabbath keeper the next Sabbath in her 90s. Ethel began attending the Adventist church. She never, she never made it all the way theologically, but she made a lot of progress for the age she was, a lot of progress, and then she died. And I really expect to see Ethel in heaven. I really think for the age she was that she made about as good a progress and about as fast as you could expect someone her age to be making. So it didn't really increase the size of our church, but you know, to win a soul is a beautiful thing. And to help a lady get past the grief that has tortured her life for 40 years is a worthwhile investment of a little time. You think so? Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14 is the second half of the story of the 12 spies. They've come back and they've given their bad report. Maybe you know what Ellen White says about this. It's, namely, she says that if 10 had given a good report and 2 had given a bad one, the congregation still would have gone with the 2. In other words, it wasn't an issue of the ratio that led the congregation. The issue was the congregation was full of doubts, and so they latched on to the message that was full of doubts. But it was 10 that were doubting. And uh, two that were bold, and one of them spoke courageously, and that led to a dangerous situation. Look at verse 10. The bold speaking is verse 8 and 9. Verse 10, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones. Israel was going to stone the only people that were giving a courageous message. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. That's what God did when he wanted to meet with them. His glory appeared so they would know to go, Moses would know to go and meet with him. So they're about to do a terrible deed when the glory appears. And do you think that stops them? It did. It did stop them. They didn't stone Joshua and Caleb because that's supernatural and now everyone's paying attention there. And Moses went to meet with God. Verse 11. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will it be before this, will this people provoke me? How long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. If Moses was seeking his own comfort and glory, he could have latched on to this beautiful promise. God was going to get rid of this rebellious group, and he and his children were going to become a mighty nation. That's hard for us to relate to. We don't think of our children becoming a nation. We know we live close to the end of time. We don't think of that. But that's what, that was like a really great thing. Moses didn't go for it. I want to save time and just tell you what you find if you read on to verse 20 and 21. Moses begins to pray that God will spare the people. He gives a few reasons that God should spare them. He says, spare them because you have spared them. In other words, because of the way that you've been being merciful to them in the past, be merciful to them now. He said, spare them because of your promises to the fathers, because of what you've said. He said, spare them because of your character, your long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth, because of who you are. Never once does Moses say, spare them because they're good people. Maybe we'll read the most interesting verse. It's verse 20. Maybe it's verse 20. It is. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. If you do intercessory prayer, do you think Numbers 14 might be a good chapter for you? It might be a good place to go and just see what kind of prayer avails with God. Because God didn't just say, I pardoned. He said, I've pardoned according to the way that you have prayed. So that's Numbers 14. Turn forward a page or two to number 16. In number 16, you have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. These three leaders who decide that Israel needs a better administrative program, they rebel, and, and uh, Moses uh, intercedes in a very interesting way. Look down at verse 19. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Does that sound familiar to what you saw in chapter 14? What you saw in 14 is that the people, the glory of God appeared when they were about to do something terrible. Verse 20, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Deja vu. Here is God speaking to Moses a second time in three chapters saying, separate from this wicked people and I will just destroy them. But Moses doesn't pray the same way in chapter 16 that he does in chapter 14. In chapter 16, his argument runs like this. He says, God, it really isn't the whole church that are doing the wrong thing. It's just a few bad men. And so God responds to that prayer almost the way it was prayed. And the, the ground opens up and it swallows Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And the children and family of Dathan and Abiram 
but not the children of Korah, which will help you if you meet people who are perplexed about Old Testament issues. God did not destroy the children of Korah because they did not partake in the rebellion of their father. God doesn't destroy the children arbitrarily in the Old Testament. You can see that in this story. You can see it in the story of the Gibeonites. And when you see that God doesn't do it arbitrarily where you can see, then you have reason to assume that where you don't know anything about it, that it wasn't arbitrary there either. That God understands and did the right thing. So, Moses' prayer, I'll just tell you in number 16, really wasn't as good as the one in chapter 14. And the next morning, we're going to look at verse 41. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Was Moses right when he said it wasn't the whole congregation that was having problems? You know, the whole congregation had problems. His prayer in chapter 14 was better. It didn't say anything about how good the people were. It was about the way God is, about God's promises and his character. It was a better quality of prayer. And uh, now in chapter 16, they're ready to kill Moses again. Look at the end of verse 42. In verse 42, they're ready to kill them. Do you see, behold, the cloud covered and the glory of the Lord appeared. And look at verse 45. The Lord said, get you up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment. It's like what happened yesterday, but this time Moses isn't going to just pray about Corydath and Abiram. And they get on their faces and they pray for the rebellious people. Which rebellious people? The ones that are trying to kill them. In video games and movies, you don't do that. In video games and movies, if the enemies are trying to kill you, if you get a chance, you kill them instead. And if the powers of, I don't know this by watching, I just... I don't know how I know it. <laughs> Maybe I'm not even right. It just seems to me that this isn't the character I saw when I watched television as a kid. And what I love about this story is what it tells us about Aaron. Do you remember Aaron? Aaron is the lousy leader who, when Moses is in the wilderness, makes the golden calf. Then when Moses comes down... He lies and says, the calf made itself. Have you read that in the Bible where he says that? And um, aren't you glad Aaron didn't die there? Because when you get here to number 16, Aaron risks his life to save people that were trying to kill him. He grabs a censer and he runs into the congregation and he stands between the living and the dead. What I love about that story is it shows that God gives people a chance to change. Amen. It really isn't true that it, you have a right to hold someone accountable in after years for the mistake they made earlier if they have thoroughly and openly repented of that thing. God chose Aaron and made him high priest on purpose. It wasn't an accident. 
Turn to chapter 20. I think that's a page or two ahead for you. In chapter 20, the people are still the same people, and so they still have the same kind of problems. And let's just save time and say that they are arguing with Moses in verse 3 and say they wish they died in the wilderness. And they are going to die in the wilderness. That's what came out of chapter 14. But um, look at verse 6. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. It's like the same story over and over and over. Moses and Aaron realize that this rebellion is going to be a deadly disaster for the people. And so they go to pray even before the glory appears, and as they go, the glory appears. What happens here? is that Moses is frustrated. And in his frustration, instead of a beautiful, warm prayer that God will spare the people, he acts out his frustration and he hits the rock. I'm going to tell you, this is why Moses had to die. His love did not endure unto the end. What God intended of Moses is that he would put up with problem after problem after problem after problem, and we would all get to look and see how this meekest man that ever lived could love people that didn't love him back, and then we would see Moses being translated without seeing death, and we would learn something about what we should, how we should live, that we should live like that. That was the intention, but it just didn't work out, because in chapter 20, Moses lost it. And he had to die. He wasn't dead very long. You know that, right? That Moses died and then he was resurrected. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23. This is another sad story chapter. This is where Israel has just chosen a king. And uh, if they had understood better what Balaam had said, they never would have done that. Maybe they would have, I don't know. But do you remember what Balaam said about a king? Balaam gave an incredible promise. He said, the shout of a king is among them. Stay in 1 Samuel 12, you are in the right place. But I'm just trying to back up a bit in your minds. Balaam was on a mountain, looking at Israel, looking down. This is just three chapters after what we just read in chapter 20 of Numbers. He's looking down, and uh, he's supposed to curse the people, right? It shouldn't be hard to curse these people. God has just said he's going to destroy them like three times in, in several chapters. But he's not able to curse them. And as he looks, he says, the shout of a king is among them. Are you in 1 Samuel 12? Can you keep a finger there and look somewhere else for a minute? Look at Micah, the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6 and verse 5. 
O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know, what does it say? The righteousness of the Lord. Suppose that someone here tonight wants to understand the righteousness of the Lord. What story should you understand? The story of Balak and Balaam. And not just anything about that story, but you want to know what Balaam is saying when he's replying to Balak's request for a curse. That's what you would study if you want to know the righteousness of the Lord. And let me tell you something about it. Balaam, looking at the rebellious people from all different angles, says he has beheld no iniquity in Jacob, that the shout of a king is among them, that the Lord God is among them, and that there is no enchantment against Israel. That's the righteousness of the Lord. And that's where to go to learn it, according to Micah chapter 6. First Samuel chapter 12, they've just chosen a king, and we're looking at verse 23. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should, what does it say? Sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. According to Samuel, he had two obligations. And these obligations really weren't obligations to the people. They were obligations to the Lord. What he owed to the Lord was to pray for the people and to teach the people. Do you see that in verse 23? And if he fails to pray for them and fails to teach them, who's he sinning against? He's sinning against the Lord. I hope you can follow this connection that I have a debt to you. I... I don't, that's the wrong way to say it in this context. I have a debt to God. I owe God to pray for you. If I neglect to pray for you and to teach you, you don't even know me. It's not really a sin against you, but it's a sin against the Lord because the Lord gave me a duty to help you. You can see that. You understand that if, if you have a child and you ask someone to help him to save his life and that person can do it and that person doesn't do it, isn't there a problem between you and that person? And so Samuel said, if I neglect to pray for you, if I cease to pray for you, that would be a sin against the Lord. Moses also taught the people. I, I don't want to give the idea for Moses that it's enough to pray for them. You also need to teach them the right way. Look at Job chapter 42. Job 42, and we're going to look at verse 10. I'm going to tell you what's in verse 7 through 9, and we'll look at verse 10. God was not pleased with the three friends of Job, and God came to the three friends and said, you go to Job and ask him to pray for you, because I will accept his prayers, lest I deal with you according to the foolishness that you've been saying. That's interesting. It's interesting to me that God does not want to punish the friends, but he indicates that they will receive some sort of judgment if they don't have some intercession. And so he directs them to go to a righteous man for intercession because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Verse 10. 
And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. That's incredible. When did Job's experience turn around? You know, all through the book of Job, it's a hard one, right? And the book of Job doesn't only describe the fact that it turns around, but it does, it puts that pivot point on an idea. It, it connects it with an event. What is the event that was the turnaround for Job? It was intercessory prayer. And I just think you'll find that that's a turnaround for you too. A pivot point for you. God is working, the universe operates on a selfless principle that goes something like this, that he that waters shall be watered also himself. Have you ever read anything like that in the Bible? This is the idea that Isaiah 58, it's when you're serving others, when you're putting yourself out for them, that's when the Lord will guide you continually and your health will spring forth speedily and your darkness will be as the noonday and you'll delight yourself in the Lord and have all the inheritance that Jacob was looking forward to. It, it's the same principle. It's when you're serving others, that's when you receive, yeah, that's how that works. I want to interrupt this idea with a beautiful promise. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. In the prayer that I offered a few minutes ago, I prayed that God would give us more of his spirit. And I just want to show you what you can do practically in your life to receive more of the Spirit. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23. It says, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Suppose what you want is more of God's Spirit and what you really want is to understand the Bible, then what can you do to, to receive this in verse 23? Why, you could turn when God gives you instruction. You could turn your life to harmonize. Let me say this to you in a very practical way. The testimonies to the church, volumes 1 through 9, are an incredible opportunity for you to receive the Holy Spirit and to understand the Bible because they are full of reproof. And what happens when you turn at God's reproof? Do you see it in verse 23, what happens when you turn? He pours out, he promises to pour out his spirit and to make known his words unto you. There's a lot more we could say about intercessory prayer, but I have several thoughts I wanna to share tonight. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit what you're going to find. If you were to look in Joel chapter 2, you know what's in that. And you can even look there now, but I'm not going to read the verses that are there. You would find the promise of the, latter, the early and the latter rain. That's in verse 31 especially, verse 23. You'd find it there twice. Do you know what leads up to that in Joel chapter 2? In verses, the verses around verse 12 and going forward talk about you and I putting away our sins, rending our hearts, not our garments. This idea of seeking to put away our sin, that's the first part of the, that's what leads up to receiving the Spirit in Joel 2. But it's not the only thing. After that, in verse 17, you find something that says, let the priests 
the priest of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare thy people. That's verse 19, I think. No, it's 17. Let them say, spare thy people, O God, and give not your heritage to reproach. Do you know, you can take that verse 17 and compare it to Numbers 14. It's the same arguments, but smaller. It's a succinct, a succinct repetition of the powerful prayer of Moses. And here, God's priests are praying that, and then verse 18 says, or verse 19, then I will have pity on my land. It's the beginning. In other words, what turns things around in Joel 2 is intercessory prayer. After intercessory prayer comes the blessings that culminate in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13. Our theme this week, at least what's been written up here, is faith that endures. Last night we talked about faith, and tonight I'm going to talk about endurance. And what, if you're wondering how that's connected, what we've looked at so far, what I wanted you to see is that Moses had a love that endured, but it did not endure unto the and Matthew 24, verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. I want you to know two ways that that happens. The, the better understood way is that when you go out to the movies with the people that go to the movies, because iniquity is in front of you and around you, it ends up messing you up, and your love for God grows cold because iniquity is all around you. That's the better known way. It's not probably for many of you the, the avenue Satan is likely to go. The other way is what happened to Moses, and that is you're living the right life, and you see the wickedness all around you, and you become to some extent bitter against it, and your love grows cold. You can watch it in your own conversation if it's the way you talk about people, the way that you relate to them, if you relate to them and talk about them as if, as if you almost don't like them. Your love for them is not growing. And what God intends is that we would have a growing love in the end of time for lost people. A love that even if they were trying to kill us would still pray to God not to punish them. That's not our experience right now. Our experience right now is if they argue with us, we don't pray to God for them except for we might, but our feelings toward them anyway. Because iniquity abounds, the love of many grows cold. That happens. I want to put these ideas together so succinctly. Intercessory prayer is what God has given me to prevent my love for you from growing cold. It gives me something to do for you, and I'm saying you to refer to like Adventist in general. It gives me something to do for you that binds my heart to you instead of weaning my heart from you. Gossip is a tool the devil has given to try to wean my heart from you. And when I spot you doing wrongly, 
really I have these two avenues available, one that will weaken my love and one that will strengthen my love. And it really does matter which avenue you go in at. Matthew 24, verse 12 said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. The salvational issue in Matthew 24 in these two verses is whether you have a love for people that endures the contradiction of sinners against yourself. Jesus had that. He endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. And according to Hebrews 12, when you're getting tired of the way people are treating you, you can look at how he endured that contradiction of sinners against yourself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. That's Hebrews 12, 3. Let me say that thought to you again. How can you endure, how can you possibly endure the consistent, regular onslaught of disappreciation and opposition? Considering what Jesus dealt with, thinking through what he went through is what will keep you from growing weary in the well-doing of loving and praying for the people. So when I see separatist movements and offshoot movements today, they don't really surprise me. It looks to me like God is giving the test he gave to Moses to many of us, and not everyone is passing. That is what God said to Moses is separate from this rebellious people and I will make a new and great nation out of you. But what God was doing is checking to see if Moses loved the people. Moses did love the people. So what did he do? He didn't separate. What did he do? He prayed. Now a lot of us, we're not like Moses. We're not separating. We just don't care at all. And if that's the way you are, you're not really even one step above those who have separated. It just is by coincidence that they separated and you were ambivalent. But there is a better option, and that is when you see what's wrong, that you acknowledge there's problems here, and you pray for the people. First Timothy First Thessalonians is what it is. First Thessalonians chapter two. First Thessalonians chapter three. It's probably on the same page. Verse twelve. And the Lord make you to increase and abound. In love, one toward another, and toward, what does it say? All men, even as we do toward you. Paul said, my love for you is growing. And if you want to know how Paul could love people he was distant from, just review sometime this week the first chapters of each of the, of the epistles. Do you know what Paul says to all these people? He says, I labor for you in prayers continual, continually. I'm always praying for you, praying always. And then he tells us, pray always for all men with all supplications. Has anyone seen this before, what I'm talking about? There was a way Paul could love the people at a distance. He could pray for them, and in that way they could be on his heart and on his mind. He was doing that. 
So my love for you should be growing. The opposite of that would be shrinking. You shouldn't say something like this. I love him, but I don't like him. I don't mean that you have to have an emotional fondness for people who are obnoxious. But I mean that you need to have a growing love for people that are obnoxious. And to have a growing love, you have to watch your lips. Because what you say has a lot to do with whether your love for them is growing or shrinking. So if you're tempted to speak ill of someone, you really ought to put your creativity to work and find something you can praise in their life and character. Has anyone read this in Ministry of Healing? That was a slight paraphrase of what could be a direct quote. That's there. Look at verse 13. To the end, in other words, for this purpose, the reason to have a growing love is for this purpose, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, in the presence... Did I read it wrong? Establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. If you read it backwards, it says at Christ's second coming, you want to be before Jesus blameless, right? If you want to be blameless, then what needs to happen is you need to have a growing love for each other and not just for each other. Who else? For all men. One of my uh, friends in this world, I'm, I'm not a person who really cultivates friends in a friend-type way, so I have to stretch the meaning of that word. I'm kind of a, a lone person. But one of my friends in this world is Don McIntosh. I like him. Anyone here know Don? And I'll tell you when I really developed my warmest feelings for Don. is when he was teaching my students in Kansas and he was late for class. And when he came into class, he acted like he was itching all over. He was scratching himself just all over. It was, it was an illustration. And he said, I'm itching all over. It has been three hours since I talked to a non-Seventh-day Adventist. He was trying to communicate something to my students. And that is, the fact that he's a pastor does not excuse him for relegating or narrowing his interaction, his association, his talking, to be primarily people who already know the three angels' messages. He felt badly about a, a fifth or a sixth of a day that was just spent with people who already know that much. I'm just trying to illustrate an idea for you, and that is we need to have a growing love for those that are without why have a growing love for those that are without? For the same reason we should have a growing love for those that are within. It's so that we can be blameless when Christ comes back. This is according to 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. Turn to Hebrews 12. We made a reference to that passage. Hebrews chapter 12. And looking at verse 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Verse 2 is for me 
one of the most encouraging. I find a lot of very encouraging verses in the Bible, and this is one in the top 200. Do you see the encouragement in the first part of verse 2? I know people that start things, but they don't finish them. Is that the Lord Jesus? He's not only the author, but the finisher of my faith. I don't have any confidence in self. Uh, I did not inherit a good set of genes morally and didn't make a good set of decisions early and didn't have an ideal training. I did have one thing that was ideal in my training, and maybe I'll give a little parenting lesson here. I had a dad who didn't even expect to go to heaven, who didn't even have victory over sin in his open life, but when he spanked me, and he did it often, he never did it in anger. And he talked to me before he would spank me. And sometimes he would cry when he spanked me. So I knew my dad really loved me and that the purpose of the discipline was to help me. My dad died 11 years ago of lung cancer, the result of his smoking habit. I don't really have a good hope or any hope really of seeing him in heaven. But I just pity the children of so many people who think they're going to heaven who don't even discipline their children that well. Anger with discipline, don't, they don't go together. And um, I think you understand that. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How do you endure a cross? You get a grip on your mind and you think about the joy that is set before you. Uh, some lady here a day or two ago uh, asked if I was going to talk about how to have victory over sin. That was a humble question for her to ask because she was open admitting that she would like some help in that department. I think maybe a lot of people would like help in that department, so I just want to say something about that. A big key is right here in Hebrews 12. This is the motive passage. What it says is that when I look to Jesus, that is how I get courage that I can possibly make it. When you don't have courage, you won't try. To think about the fact that Jesus started in you and that's evidence that he could finish, that's very encouraging. Is that encouraging to you? That's encouraging to me. The author and finisher, and then if I think long term, that really weakens a lot of temptations. Most temptations pull without any intellectual strings at all. And just to put my mind into that more rational channel really weakens the nature of temptation. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Then the next verse says, you consider him in the contradiction of sinners. The cross becomes a real tool in my battle with besetting sins. That is the context here. You remember what verse one? The sins that so easily beset us. That is the context here. So here, battling with that sin, Thinking about Jesus, I see a love that moves me to do the right thing. 
Now, here's my testimony. Never once in my life have I fallen under temptation while choosing to do the right thing and depending on the power of God. Never, ever once. If the devil wants to make me fall, he knows he has to aim at one of those two things, either to cause me to neglect to depend or to lead me to fail to choose. If he misses on both boats, he has to run. That's going to be as true for anyone here as it is true for me. What makes it hard to overcome sin is that we have bad habits. And the bad habits mean that we end up in temptation without even thinking about divine power. So we're not depending. And we might put up a little struggle right at the end, but anyway, we're no match for temptation. Let me give you just a couple more ideas for those who really are looking for some real help. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it in the lust thereof. For me as a young boy, that meant I had to avoid bookstores because they had magazines that weren't good for me as a boy to see. It wasn't good enough for me to go into a bookstore and then try to avoid the magazines. That's not good enough. What do I need to avoid? The bookstore. When God convicted me as an 11-year-old not to watch television, I thank God for the Holy Spirit because that wasn't my parents' teaching. When that happened, I learned when I would come upstairs where we were eating our meals, our living room and our dining room were one room. The, there was a difference in carpet and tile, but no divider between them. So at the meal table, you could see the television. And I learned that despite my very best intentions, if the television was on, I would watch it. Can anyone relate to that? So I told my mom that I was no longer coming to meals unless they would turn the television off. That was the right answer. It would, it would not have been the right answer for me to try to sit there and struggle through not watching. That wouldn't have been it. What the Bible says is flee youthful lust. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it in the lust thereof. That's what the Bible says. And I didn't even know it back then. So that's why I say I thank God for the Holy Spirit. One more thought on overcoming sin. I suppose in a room this size with this many men, there are probably here a dozen men who are even right now addicted to pornography. I suppose it probably is that way, that and or masturbation. But you know, none of them are looking at it right now. You wouldn't even think about doing that because there's people around. Just having people around it totally takes away any chance of you doing that. If you would learn to cultivate the concept that God is with you in the restroom and in the closet and in the woods, the angels are with you, you would find your self-respect cooperating with your choice to be victorious and your dependence on God, you already have the choice and the dependence. You would find self-respect would come and be another aid. Self-respect is powerful. It can even make bad people do good things. Bring it to your aid.
Practice the presence of Jesus. Remember what Hagar said when she was cast out? She said, thou, Lord, what did she say? You see me. That's a good way for you to talk, a good way for us to talk. So what is it that causes people not to endure? I'm closing now. One thing is a cherished sin. A cherished sin is a sin that you hold on to and that eventually overcomes and neutralizes the power of the gospel in your own life. Because sin is the author and the finisher of your destruction. You can't hold on to sin and make it. But we've dealt with that. You can depend on God. You can choose the right. You can think about Jesus until you're moved that way. That's how you will escape that. What else keeps people from enduring? One is the abundance of iniquity. The gossip and the bad behavior and the foolish actions of church family and immediate family and children and parents. Because iniquity abounds, the love of many grows cold. But here in Hebrews 12, I already closed my Bible, maybe you closed yours, but you'll find a little bit later on in the, in the chapter, it says, looking diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Is that verse 13? Or verse 11? 15? Verse 15, look, looking diligent, diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby, what does it say? Many be defiled. This abounding of iniquity can mess up an entire church. A little bit of bitterness can really do destruction. Have you witnessed that in the northern woods in the last few months? A little bit of bitterness can cause lots of problems. The antidote is the same as the antidote to your personal issues. It's looking to Jesus. When you see a lot of people doing wrong, you can't watch that very long before it messes you up. You just have to turn away from that. And there's nothing in Jesus that will discourage you. You'll find everything there that will encourage you. And then we looked at something practical you can do to love your erring brethren, and that is to pray for them. When you pray for them, it doesn't need to be hard-hearted type prayer. You can think of Titus 3.3, we also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, hateful and hating one another. That's what verse 3 says. And then it says, but after that, the love and kindness of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. In other words, we were really messed up, and what is it that managed to change us? The love of God showed up. Suppose that you know someone right around you in your immediate family or in your church that is so messed up. What do you think might do it for them? Maybe the love of God appearing? But what makes the love of God in you grow cold? I'm just trying to put these ideas together for you can see that intercessory prayer is really essential for you. Not just to pray, but what did Samuel also do? To teach, right? To pray and to teach keeps our heart in good order. So let's call this a rebuke, a rebuke to our indifference. Suppose you get a rebuke, then what ought you to do? Turn, right? Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will 
pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Yeah, that's what we need, the spirit to teach us, to keep our hearts warm so Jesus can finish the work he started so when he appears, we can be before him blameless. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I claim the promise for me that you will be the finisher of my faith. And I ask that you would hear every prayer here that's like that. That you would do for us what you did for Aaron and give us such a change that we would die for people that before could lead us astray. I ask that you would find a way to cause us to endure. And I ask that you would give us your spirit and teach us more about your word and guide us to those very reproofs that would be evidence that you love us. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.